afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, leprosy, stamps, and fat. In addition, Ms. Jennifer Washburn will join us to discuss the corporate corruption of higher education. Also, we'll find out how chemicals are protected. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Rocks, I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. That's uh, almost pretty good as can you can get. You could go for five pretty goods. <laughs> I'm not that excited. What would it take to get you that excited? I don't know. Maybe uh, witnessing the Big Bang again? Uh, you've seen it before? Uh, in my dreams. I dream of a Big Bang, but it's never really happened to me. <laughs> so uh, have you been to the post office lately? Actually, well, no. Actually, I haven't. Ah, that's something interesting. So it turns out the U.S. Postal Service is featuring four scientists on their stamps, and it came out on May 4th, including, of course, the renowned Richard Feynman. Uh, he is certainly on my list of uh, what I'd want to see when I'm licking a stamp. <laughs> I've dreamt of licking Feynman. <laughs> what other possible scientists are there for me to lick? You also can lick Barbara McClintock, Joshua Gibbs, and John von Neumann. Wow, you know, if I was really good, I could lick them all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can eat them too. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool. So each of those very famous scientists had important contributions in a number of areas. Of course, yes. Feynman of the Feynman diagrams of quantum electrodynamics. Right. Von Neumann of the uh, min-max theorem, right? Right. Uh, Gibbs for the laws of thermodynamics. The second one, I believe. One of them. That was all entropy, right? <laughs> and there's no free lunch. That's the other one, right? Ah, and uh, McClintock was a geneticist. So that's very cool. So you should rush down and get these stamps at the post office. Yes. You can look very important scientists. You can also send a mail. That's sort of a side benefit of having those stamps, I guess. Yeah. Okay, what's better to follow up stamps than the topic of leprosy? Wow, I was thinking of chocolate milkshake, but... <laughs> I don't know, can a chocolate milkshake give you leprosy? No, let me... <laughs> Maybe, well, maybe it's infected with the bacterium that yeah. <laughs> causes it, which is, I guess, this mycobacterium leprae. <laughs> so is it extinct or is it still out there in the environment? Apparently, yeah, so very poor countries still have some low level of leprosy in the environment, and that's just due to poor antibiotic sterilization issues. Right. So it's actually been around for quite some time, I guess. The earliest records are from around 600 BC, from India, in fact. Uh, people have wondered for quite some time time, how did leprosy, you know, start and how did it spread across the globe? Mm-hmm. And of course, nowadays they can test this just by using, you know, genetic analysis of various leprosy strains. Right. One of the fascinating things that they've just found out, a study done by Stuart Cole of the Pasteur Institute in Paris, was that most of the leprosy strains that exist in the world right now mm-hmm. are in fact very similar. I so mean, it must have originated from a couple of sources then. Yeah, almost one common source or so. And in fact, if they really look closely, they can break them down into very, very specific types. And it looks like when they do this, they get about four types, but upon their analysis, they say that it looks like the leprosy could either have originated from East Africa or from Asia. So Asia is kind of the common explanation and it spreads from there. Right. But it's equally likely that it originated in Africa and because of the sort of similarity between African and North American strains, they conjecture that in fact maybe the slave trade had a lot to do with actually spreading the disease. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. So don't trade slaves. (laughs) 
Is it true that thalidomide can be used to cure leprosy? I had actually heard that, but I'm not sure how it works. But I guess due to liability reasons for uh, people mixing up and uh, getting possible birth defects, these companies are reluctant to actually produce it anymore. Right, right. Well, I mean, thalidomide's actually come back and, and again, but of course nowadays they're, they're more conscientious about the fact that you can't take it while you're pregnant. Yeah. So anyway, very cool stuff regarding uh, leprosy. And you can take a look. This was actually published in the uh, recent edition of the journal Science. Charles, when your mom was giving birth to you, were you so excited that you just broke out before the nine months? You know, I've I've always wanted to stay in the womb, <laughs> which is why I'm in academia. <laughs> Kind of a womb in and of itself. <laughs> Safely protected. Yes. Well, it turns out that frogs can do that. They can jump out uh, before their term is completed if there's some sort of danger. And if they're not happy, can they jump back in? Uh-huh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, it's a one-way ticket, huh? Yeah, once the bottle breaks. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of danger could they possibly... Frogs, so basically a mother would deposit these eggs and they would get fertilized, stuck to a, a tree or branch somewhere outside. And if it gets attacked by, say, a snake or some other animal, it can sense these vibrations, eject itself out of the sack for uh, fully already. It's uh, amazing. I think I was almost attacked a couple times in the womb <laughs> by a <laughs> coat hanger. I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 So it's quite interesting since it turns out these frogs are very sensitive to specific rhythms and vibrations. So, for example, if it was raindrops falling on them, it wouldn't affect them. Whereas if it was like the patterns of, say, a snake biting into the batch of eggs in there, the rest of the ones that survive can sense it and it'll make their uh, getaway as soon as they can. Oh, very cool. This is going to appear in the July issue of the journal Animal Behavior, but you can also uh, see it in this week's Scientific American. Right, and uh, moving on to issues of fat. Isn't that like a Michael Jackson song, I'm Fat or something? Yes, right, a parody <laughs> of the bad song by Michael Jackson. Uh, so it turns out fresh fat is good fat. It's like fresh off the meat then? <laughs> well, at least fresh to your body. So new fat for your body, in fact, winds up being better than older stored fat for actually helping to turn over the metabolism of fat into sugars. Oh, so you're saying that we should eat uh, younger cows than grandma cows, huh? No, no, no. I mean, so it turns out that Clay Semenkovich, an endocrinologist at Washington State University in St. Louis, has shown that in order for your body to properly metabolize fat into sugars, you actually need to be consuming a little bit of fat uh, already. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So you can't convert old stored fat uh-huh. already into sugars. You actually have to ingest a little bit of fat to help catalyze the process. Huh. Is it some sort of solubility mechanism or is it just some sort of chemical marker? There's some sort of switch that uh, occurs in the liver that acquires, I guess, a little bit of uh, new ingested fat mm-hmm. in order to start the process. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, so they did this using some transgenic process. They knocked out some pathway and uh-huh. found that these mice weren't able to metabolize the old fat without having new fat. Keep on eating those Frito-Lays, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Or order the French fries. They make the obvious point that most the cause of fatty liver type syndromes are not due to the lack of fat ingestion, but <laughs> perhaps too much. <laughs> but it's more interesting just as an uh, insight into metabolic pathways. Indeed. So this is very fascinating work. It was published in the recent edition of Cell Metabolism. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Ms. Jennifer Washburn will join us to discuss the corporate corruption of higher education. So stay tuned.
back to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, the university setting is often seen as an ivory tower, immune to the influences of the outside world, where scholars toil on issues that often may have little practical relevance. But more and more, scientific research at public universities is being funded by private and industrial sources, which in and of itself is not bad, but has the potential to lead to serious conflicts of interest and the erosion of normal academic inquiry. Joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss this issue is Jennifer Washburn. Ms. Washburn is a fellow at the New America Foundation, whose published work has appeared in, among others, The Atlantic Monthly, The Washington Post, The Nation, and The Journal of Commerce. Her most recent book, University Inc., The Corporate Corruption of Higher Education, focuses on the commercialization of higher education in America. Ms. Washburn, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Thanks a lot, Charles. It's great to be here. Well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and you've, you've certainly written a very fascinating book, uh, University Inc., in which you... Uh, detail uh, a lot about the corporate funding of research on campuses. I'm curious if you can actually explain uh, this issue and why it's a bit of a problem. Sure. Well, in, in a nutshell, the problem is that universities are increasingly starting to look and behave more and more like for-profit institutions. The American public still largely believes that our nation's universities are independent, non-profit institutions uh, dedicated to education and disinterested research. That view is still widely held. When we want to know whether a drug is safe for us, we tend to trust that research produced at Harvard or UC Berkeley or any number of other institutions would assure us that that research was disinterested and done with integrity. And increasingly, what my book shows is that this is no longer true. I really see it as a wake-up call for parents, students, and citizens to realize that the growing financial ties between universities and corporations and this broader intrusion of a market ideology into the heart of academic life is really altering the fundamental core mission of the university. What is, in your opinion, I guess the fundamental core mission of the university then? I think you can really sum it up as academic research and teaching and education. The problem, universities historically, they've always performed research that had utility. They've always had relationships with private industry. But generally what drove university research was not short-term profitability of the research. So it was usually an inadvertent outcome or professors may be trying to search for a particular solution to a problem, but not so much with profits in mind. And increasingly, that has changed because of various different larger economic forces and funding pressures as well. Uh, indeed. So why this sudden shift from uh, the research for academic purposes only to actually trying to transfer research directly into the industrial sphere? Yeah, I guess I would go back to uh, 1980. Congress passed legislation in 1980 that was very important. Very few people know about this act. It was called the Bayh-Dole Act, and it was named after Senators Birch Bayh and Bob Dole. And basically, it gave universities automatic intellectual property rights to federally funded research. The intention behind the legislation was quite noble. It was passed at a time when the U.S. was facing growing competition from Germany and Japan. At the time, our economy was stagnating. And the thought was that if if you gave universities a financial incentive to commercialize federally funded research on campus, it would stimulate innovation. It would speed the transfer of academic knowledge to industry. So the idea was a good one. The problem is that absolutely nobody thought about what it would mean to introduce a profit motive into the heart of the university. In the past, uh, universities had relationships with industry. Their students would go on and go to work in industry after they graduated. But the university itself did not try to profit off of campus-based research. And their professors did not actually go into business themselves. And now what we're seeing is, is universities are involved in all kinds of commercial activities that were really unheard of a generation ago. 
And is there no oversight for the, the types of funds then that come into the university uh, from outside industrial sources? To yeah, the oversight sources? is really performed by the universities. Um, mm. But universities are now running their own venture capital funds, their own industrial parks to commercialize research. They're mm. pouring money into patenting and licensing operations that are very expensive. And sometimes they really run contrary to the public interest. Just give you one example. Uh, the researchers at the University of Utah discovered a human gene responsible for hereditary breast cancer. This research was funded by the U.S. taxpayers. We paid about $4.6 million for that research. But the university didn't make that research broadly available through the public domain as they would have in the past. They actually raced to patent the gene and licensed the exclusive rights to the professor's startup company, a company by the name of Myriad Genetics, which proceeded to hoard the gene and prevent other academic scientists throughout the United States and indeed throughout the world from using it in their own breast cancer research. So that's an example where giving universities the power to regulate themselves is not always in the public interest because that monopoly license prevented other academic scientists from doing very worthwhile research on breast cancer. Right. It certainly sounds like it limits academic freedom and, and research on these issues. Uh, you also detail, I guess, in your book a number of other issues. In, in fact, a couple here at Berkeley. I wonder if you could talk about those. Sure. Yeah, a huge part of my book actually takes place at Berkeley. So for you know students and professors who might be listening or people in the community, there is a large sort of section of the book that gives a summary of the various issues that have arisen at Berkeley itself. In 1998, Berkeley signed a very large $25 million five-year agreement with Novartis, Swiss-based drug company and producer of genetically modified crops. And the agreement created a real uproar on Berkeley's campus. Through that deal, it meant that effectively one-third of an entire department, the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology, was now being funded by one private corporation. That company also had first rights to negotiate licenses on one-third of the research that came out of that department, which happened to be one of the more prestigious departments at Berkeley. Hmm. So a lot of people were wondering, you know, what does this mean for a public university to essentially lease out one of its most prestigious laboratories to one private company? Hmm. There, there are many other cases that we could talk right. about. One case that I, I feel sort of compelled to raise because it's still very much alive today is the issue of a professor by the name of Ignacio Chapella, mm-hmm. who um, was one of the most outspoken professors in the College of Natural Resources. He was very critical of the UC Berkeley Novartis deal. He organized a faculty survey to to try to find out what the views of the faculty were about the agreement, and he pushed very hard for the agreement to be made fully public so that everyone could see what the terms of the contract were. And unfortunately, his case has been a really sad one because he was waiting to see whether he would get tenure or not, and at first his prospects looked very good. The College of Natural Resources voted overwhelmingly, 32 to 1, in favor of giving him tenure. Then an ad hoc tenure committee, which was composed of of experts chosen for their ability to evaluate his research, they voted unanimously in his favor, and at the very, very last stage, his tenure was denied. Hmm. So there there are a lot of questions about his case, and I'm sad to say that I have found all too often that professors who are very outspoken and critical of academic industry alliances are not rewarded by their institutions. Mm. I could name any number of cases where professors have lost their appointments or fought very hard and very painful battles against their administrations. And oftentimes it seems retaliated against them. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's a pretty remarkable case actually at Brown University involving a, a doctor who did occupational health research who lost his appointment after trying to actually basically just 
just just trying to publish his research. Uh, his sponsor tried to suppress. It wasn't even his sponsor. It was a company that produced nylon flocking textile material, and his research showed that workers in that textile environment uh, working with that material were developing a very unusual lung disease. And when he tried to publish that research, the university urged him not to go ahead, hmm. claiming that he had signed a previous contract that took away his right to publish. But most people that I spoke to independently, and certainly most people in the occupational health community, felt that there was no danger of him disclosing any proprietary secrets in publishing his research, and so the company had no grounds to block publication. I'm curious, I mean, haven't there been these kind of intrusions into the academic sphere before? I mean, for instance, military funding of research, and why isn't there some sort of resistance as well? Yes, this is one of the things that I'm really very interested in, in terms of why is there so much silence about intrusions uh, into the academic sphere? You're quite right. In the past, certainly, we saw considerable opposition on university campuses, professors and students protesting excessive military influence over academic research. So at different points in the university's history, there have always been constituencies who rose up to oppose various outside intrusions into the academic culture. And what concerns me most about what we're seeing today is that I feel that there's an enormous degree of silence. And I think one of the problems is that universities are facing a lot of financial pressures. There's been cutbacks in public support for higher education. And many administrators either believe that they have no other choice or they believe that these academic industry alliances are are only a good thing and they fail to see the downsides. Mm. So uh, what, what are possible solutions to this problem then? Well, I propose a lot of different solutions. I certainly think that there should be much stricter conflict of interest rules attached to federal research grants. When the federal government gives out money to academic scientists, I think it's really important now that they attach provisions that require those professors to avoid having financial relationships with companies that stand to profit from that research. Um, We just have so few sectors in our society that can perform disinterested research that's free of kind of commercial conflict. And I think it's critical that if it's publicly supported, that we try to nurture a realm where we can really trust that the information is at least not driven by the commercial bottom line. Mm -hmm. And I propose a number of other things. I think there should be the patenting and licensing activity that's now going on inside the university should be handled by a third party, an independent third party, because I think it's just not the role of the university to be profiting off of campus-based research, and it creates too much conflict on campus. Uh, well, it is a certainly a fascinating issue, I guess one that a lot of people have to take a look at, but we are uh, slightly out of time, and uh, I just want to thank you very much for uh, joining us to talk about this very fascinating issue. Thanks so much, Charles. And you were just listening to Ms. Jennifer Washburn discussing issues contained in her new book, University, Inc., The Corporate Corruption of Higher Education. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, so stay tuned.
Berkeley Gronks, only here on 90.7 FM KLX. We'll be back from the break, and Ms. Jennifer Washburn, author of University Inc., has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue, and today the Grokatron 5000 has to- chosen the topic, Show Me the Money. So, for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know whether the projects will be funded by industrial or public funding. Uh, Ms. Washburn, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Yes, I'm ready to play, but I, it's just that I would like to have it noted that, unfortunately, public funding is far too often going toward more commercially-oriented research these days. Oh, really? I think the federal government is not being vigilant enough about making sure to, to support more public good research, and so there's heard of all kinds of scandalous research that you would think was very corporate in orientation that is actually funded by the federal government, but huh. there we go. Huh, really? Less, less distinction being, between the two, huh? That being noted, let's, let's play the game. <laughs> all right, let's, here we go. Study number one, industrial or public funding, a study of Martha Stewart. Industrial. Presume it's all marketing oriented. <laughs> but of course it could be a sociologist studying Martha Stewart as a phenomenon of some kind. That's, so. that's true as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, study number two, industrial or public funding, something I guess uh, you might be familiar with in Washington, a study of cherry blossoms. I'll say federal. You know, I'm going to guess somehow studies of cherry blossoms aren't too profitable. But then again, you know, you can make a lot of money off of selling cherry trees. So, and Of course, people like to watch them blossom every year. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, study number three, uh, study of rising gas prices. I'm going to guess federal again. I'm hoping that the federal government is looking into why this is happening and, and maybe thinking about the need for greater energy efficiency. We can only hope, but... Uh, <laughs> I know. Their current policy, I wonder, though. <laughs> It's unlikely. Yeah. Um, Okay, number four, a study of Texas Hold'em poker. Hmm. Just to sort of hedge my bets, I'm going to guess federal. Maybe to curb gambling a little bit, or? (laughs) (laughs) Mostly just because I don't want to be too predictable. (laughs) And, And finally, number five, a study of the president, George W. Bush. Hmm. Well, I'll say corporate funded. He's owned by the corporations already, so... (laughs) Halliburton and the rest, I imagine. Uh, Yeah. Well, very good. Ms. uh, Washburn, I want to thank you very much for playing our game, The Grokatron 5000. Of course, discussing your book, University, Inc., and join us today on Berkey Grox. Thanks again. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Whoa, dude, it's like Surfer Bob now with, like, the totally answer to like, last week's question of the week, man. Like, I was, like, catching this totally tubular wave, and it comes crashing over me, man, and, like, nothing could protect me. But, like, everyone wants to know, like, dude, how can, like, chemicals be protected from, like, reactions, dude? Whoa, those chemical molecules, like, they can be protected by protecting grooves, man. Whoa, totally reactive, man. Radical.
Okay,、uh, thank you, Mr. Safadud. And now here's us Tokyo Kids with this week's question of the week. It is so, 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 so sweet. This chemical is everywhere in your food, and it's also in a lot of、uh, interesting products. What is it? The basic formula seems to be some carbon and a little bit of water. If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at、uh, grogs at hotmail.com. Uh, you won't win anything, but your tea might be a little bit sweeter. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grogs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grogs, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grogs, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grogs.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, The Girl in the Green Jacket. <laughs>